How do you stay resilient? How do you thrive in a system of equal inequality? Jesus. <laughs> I mean, um, <laughs> I'm just saying, Jesus. Um, you know, I mean, I think sometimes we should probably make it more complicated than that, but it it really is that. Like. So welcome to season two, episode four. I'm thrilled to not only have a colleague, but a mentor and a friend with us today, the Reverend Dr. Tori Butler. I asked her to join us because season two is intentionally different from season one. So in, in season two, we're talking with folks hard at work, reimagining what it means to respond and really reform the issues within our society. The question I'm seeking to answer is how do we join in with what is already happening now to expand the possibility of abundant life for all. And that expanded possibility for all is what the life of Jesus looks like to me. And I know that's what it looks like for Dr. Tori. She has a heart to impact our culture for the better and show the upcoming generations how to carry that forward. So Reverend Dr. Tori, welcome to Applying Jesus. Well, thank you. Thank you, Amy, for this invitation to be with you on today. I'm so excited about our conversation. Uh, whenever we get to talking, we're always trying to figure out how we're going to solve the problems of the world. Um, I don't know if I, I don't know if this uh, in this forum we're going to be able to solve all the problems of the world, but we can at least try. Right, right. And you know, I've discovered that um, there's not a lot of solving that actually happens in these conversations, <laughs> but there's a lot of great ideas that are generated, and that's truly my my hope is that. The people listening are going to come away with this with reimagining how we address um, address these social issues of our day and how we apply our Christian faith and tradition to do that. So um, I want to give our listeners a little bit of background on you so they can get a sense of who you are and what work you're involved in. So bear with me. I'm going to read a little bit of your bio. <laughs> you got you got a lot going on, but um <laughs> I know that you'll share more about that. And so I'm just going to give a, a high level overview if that's all right. Sounds great. Okay, great. Well, the Reverend Dr. Tori Butler was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. She has a BA in history and international relations from McDaniel College, a master of divinity from Duke Divinity School, and by God's amazing grace and through tremendous perseverance. In 2019, she received her doctor of ministry degree from Emory University with a concentration in biblical interpretation and proclamation. What I, I am fascinated with is her Doctor of Ministry project is entitled The Power of Mourning, Creating Spaces of Vulnerability for Black Clergy Women to Lament and Holler. In addition to her pastoral work, she's a contributor to two books, Do Not Be Afraid, Bishops and Young Clergy Share Signs of Resurrection and Words of Hope, and I'm Black, I'm Christian, I'm Methodist. She's been a featured panelist uh, for Emory University, Howard University, the Convocation of Black Pastors, and the General Commission on Religion and Race. And what's really cool is she recently had the honor of speaking at the 57th anniversary of the March on Washington. She is currently serving as the senior pastor of Asbury Town Neck United Methodist Church in Severna Park, Maryland, after returning home to serve in the Northeast following three cross-cultural appointments in Texas. 
Her ministry is focused on inviting people into the transformative encounter, into a transformative encounter with, goodness, I'm getting ahead of myself. As my preaching coach, she would tell me to slow down. <laughs> inviting people into a transformative encounter with the Holy Spirit. And God uses her, y'all, in so many ways. As a prophet, as a teacher, a preacher, a scholar, I can tell you she is definitely a scholar, an activist, an evangelist, a counselor, a writer, a shouter and a dancer, all for the glory of God. And as I mentioned, God uses her also as my preaching coach. If you were wondering how I secured such an accomplished guest to being on this podcast. And so I just really appreciate that you're joining me because you're just so gracious. You're, you're kind, you're funny, and I'm just eternally grateful the Lord connected us. Thank you. Thank you. It's all, it's always overwhelming. Um, when you hear what you do, because oftentimes you're just doing it, you know, it's not necessarily you're trying to accumulate things, right? You're just, you just find yourself going with where God is leading you to go. Right. So, right. So the reason why I invited you, Dr. Tori is to, to come on here is because for me, it's always just such a wonderful experience to sit at your feet and this is one of the issues we're going to talk about today that you and I are both so passionate about, and it's women, and in particular, women of color in ministry, and mm -hmm. what it looks like today, and what we hope to be part of that change for the future. Uh, but before we really dive into that, because I know that's, that's also your doctoral work, um, mm -hmm. so, so tell, tell us about your call, not only to serve God, but specifically his people through being a pastor. That's a, that's a long story. So I'm going to try to make it uh, truncated a little bit. Um, I think I was called at a very early age. Like I was praying for my whole church when I was three years old. You know, I was testifying um, in church at seven. Um, I gave my first sermon at 11, wow. but I did not get back up until I was 21. Oh, wow. um, and part of that is a lot of, a lot of young people's stories is, is church hurt. You know, people, yeah. you may be young and gifted, but if, if, if it's not nurtured, if it's not cultivated, um, you kind of lose your voice. Yeah. Um, and, and so, uh, through a series of death and I, and as I, as, as I'm thinking about my doctoral work and, and all the things that I did, everything connects because my calling really came out of losing a lot of really close people in my life and understanding that life was too short not to serve God. Like I literally heard the voice of God tell me that. Now, did I know what that meant? Absolutely not. I, I didn't have a, a frame of reference of what my life would look like. I just knew that I needed to live a life that was surrendered. Mm. Um, and so uh, through the help of some great mentors, um, I was actually working at uh, Baltimore Gas and Electric, and I had a, a wonderful uh, supervisor and mentor who was a deaconess at a church, um, and just had and and a lot of the women around me at that time were heavily involved in ministry. Um, they weren't pastors, but they they were just they had a deep and abiding faith, and and I thank God for that season in my life because they were the ones that kind of helped guide me. Uh, to where I needed to go and connect me to where I needed to be. And so um, I did a summer, I did a semester abroad in Argentina. And like right before then, 
I had got baptized. So no one actually explained to me what baptism is. So as a pastor, I get so, um, that's something that's really near and dear to me to explain like what happens when you get baptized and, and why it's so important. Because I thought you got baptized into, into a denomination. I didn't know at the time that you actually get baptized into the body of Christ. Right. And so once I, later on, once I understood that, um, just the doors began to open up for me, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I came back from studying abroad and I just, I went to a Black Student Leadership Conference and it's, I can't believe, um, January, 2007 and really heard um, they, there was a guy who ended up doing an altar call. Now, this is not a Christian conference. This is a black student leadership conference, wow. but he ends up doing an altar call um, and prays for us, right? And so at the time I thought I was called to do a PhD. And then it threw, again, through these wonderful mentors, someone sent me to go meet with this woman uh, at Princeton Theological Seminary. And when I got there, I was like, oh, <laughs> this is where I'm supposed to be. Wow. But even in my journey in um, my MDiv program, I wasn't necessarily convinced that I was going to be a pastor. Really? Um, no, mm -mm. Wow. no. I started off really wanting to get a PhD. Um, I had some discouragement in the process. Well, we can talk about that a different day. Yeah, um, what's a, what was your PhD going to be in? Uh, probably Old Testament. Hmm probably Old Testament or, or some, or some sort of pastoral theology or something like that. Um, so, but I digress. Uh, I still love the Old Testament, by the way. Uh, yeah, well, we're going to, you're going to come back and we're going to nerd we're, out. We're going to nerd out on the Old Testament. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah. So I, like I said, I really wasn't sold, uh, to be a pastor um, and then I did a internship on Capitol Hill working for uh, the General Board of Church and Society. And the only thing I en enjoyed doing at that time was mentoring young people and preaching. Hmm. So to me, that sounds like as I got into that, I was like, mm, that sounds a lot more like pastoring than I, than I initially thought. And so um, I pursued it and um, started off in, in North Carolina and then I got recruited from North Carolina to come to the Texas Annual Conference. Yeah, and for those of us who are listening who may not know the structure of the United Methodist Church is that each region has what they're called conferences, right? General conference. Yes, so we are really quickly, the way that I try to explain this, it's very much like um, the school board. You mm -hmm. know how at the school board, you have a department of education. So that would be the bishop's office, right? We also have district superintendents and then your principals would be your senior pastors. Right. Right. That's and that's, yeah. That's in each region. That's in each region. Yes. Yes. And some, some states have more than one conference and some states are combined, you know, okay. like, so for instance, I'm, uh, I serve in Baltimore, Washington, um, but Baltimore, Washington also includes a little bit of West Virginia and actually the Bahamas. Wait, the Bahamas? The Bahamas. I don't know how they got the Bahamas. <laughs> don't ask me. I don't know, but they have the Bahamas, okay? They're part right. of the situation. I'm still trying to figure out how I can get, you know, appointed to the Bahamas. But that, that was my next question, right? No, I don't know how we can make that happen. I served, um, I served in Houston. Well, I started off in Southeast Texas. Um, then I served in Houston. 
Uh, so in Southeast Texas, that was a cross-racial appointment. Um, Houston was a cross-racial appointment, but, cro but I served a predominantly Filipino congregation and as well as a predominantly white congregation. So we can talk a little bit more about that if you want to go deeper. Um, then I was a chaplain at Wiley College, which is an HBCU, one of the United Methodist HBCUs. Um, and then I served as an executive pastor in another cross-racial appointment. And then after that, I moved back um, to Maryland. You know, you, you've been in not just several different church settings, but different ministry settings yes. in Texas and in the Northeast. So you've been in these different ministry settings. So I wanted to start off by talking about the similarities. I think the differences will be obvious, but let's talk about the similarities. Oftentimes in the white settings that I served, um, I did a lot of, uh, I was more of the pastoral care pastor. Mm. Um, and I was also the contemporary worship pastor typically. Um, and so, and, and I was considerably younger than the senior pastors oftentimes. And so I would be in the contemporary service, which would be more of the family services, you know, people with small families, you know, young, younger couples, that sort of deal. Um, um, oftentimes, particularly in the South, I started a lot of women, women's ministries, women's Bible studies, um, partly because I think that was the culture really um, yeah. of the South as well. Like uh, particularly you have, you know, like the Beth Moore's particular in, in, in Texas, Beth Moore is really, really big. Um, so you know, so there's the necessity oftentimes to kind of bring um, multi-generational women together in these settings. Um, I would say uh, working with young people has been my, like, if I could say what's been the same, what's been consistent uh, for me has always been trying to get young people involved in church and allowing them to find their voices and, and, and participate. Uh, I think one of, uh, one of the most transformative moments in my ministry uh, happened in two quiet ways, very young, very, you know, very early on. One was um, I'm preparing communion. And I, this is back when I'm in Houston and I'm, I'm you know, uh, I'm over a service. And, but I have a, a huge group of youth at this church. And what kind of, once I started coming, once I was their pastor, they started inviting their friends. And because the service started to grow, these youth began to organize themselves, like, and they organized themselves to be ushers. And, and then, you know, they had a own praise band and also type of stuff. So that was really cool. Right. This is in a, this is in a white church too. Yes. This is a, this is in a white church. This okay. is in a white church. However, um, the way that it was set up is that they were a worshiping community that eventually became a part of the church. Okay. And so, so when I got there, they were called the Asian American congregation. When I left part of, part of the things that I did do was, um, make them not make them, but, you know, help transition them into call, being called the international service mm -hmm. of the church, because I couldn't see saying they're the congregation says that they're not a part of the church. If they merge with the church at some point, you, you are now a literal part of the church. You're not a congregation. You are, you are an integral part of the life of the church. Right. And so, um, and also the demographics began to change under my leadership at the time. So it went from still being, it was still predominantly Filipino, 
But then we had a lot of interracial couples starting to join. We had white couples with small children starting to join. A lot of people ended up liking the service because it was smaller and it, and it was child, it was child friendly. Right. So, so that was really cool. But back to the story. Um, uh, so one morning I'm setting up communion in the chapel and one of the young people, she's probably about 14. She's helping me set up communion, you know, just, you know, what we do like, okay, it's, it's just, it's communion Sunday. We're putting, you know, putting the cups together and the bread and all some type of stuff. And so, uh, she doesn't say this to me, but she says this to her sister, who's probably around 12. And she says, you need to pay attention because you're going to have to do this someday. And I was like, oh, okay. Okay. So that let me know, like this little bit of training that I'm doing is, is impactful. And then, um, and this is a, this is also, um, a little bit of a difference in, in black and white worship is that, um, you know, like in, in black church or, or churches that are non-black, cause it happened in my Filipino service, you know, was that, you know, people got up, you stand up, you, when people sing, they raise their hands. It's not this, um, it's, it's not a very staunch form of worship. It's very embodied, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a very embodied experience of God. And so one of my young people talked to me about UM Army as a side, if you don't know what UM Army is. Texas is really big. Your army is basically this, um, it's like a service, a week of service that young people do for a week and they, and, and they rebuild people's houses and wheelchair ramps and that sort of deal. Um, but there's also kind of like a worship element every night after they come in from doing their day of service. Oh yeah. I'm a UM army kid. Oh, you are. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. There was a particular. There's always particular songs that you sing at the worship service every year, and if if you started to sing them, I'd I'd be right there with you. So okay, <laughs> we don't have to. We we can do that another time. Okay, all right. Well, I I didn't go to UM Army, but I sent my kids. Sent my kids to go, and so when they come back, <laughs> they tell me this story. This girl comes in my office and says, "Well, we want to tell you what happened." I said, "Okay, well, tell me what we we loved you, Marby. Thank you so much for sending us." I'm like, "Okay, cool." Um, and and then they begin to tell me about what happened during worship. They said they looked around and they were like, "Nobody is standing up in worship." And so we kind of looked at each other and we we're like, "What's going on? Why is why is no one standing up?" <laughs> I was like, "Okay," and so they said, "Well, they." They, that went on the first night. And then, so they said the second night we decided we were going to start standing up and we were going to start raising our hands and all this sort of stuff. And I said, okay. And then it pre- the story proceeds on. And they said, you know, they were asking us <laughs> what was going on. And, they, and the little girls told me, she said, we don't know what they were doing, but our pastor told us how to worship. And I, <laughs> I was like, okay, all right. So what I'm saying is, um, you asked me what was the similarity, was that um, wherever I go, my hope is to bring a spirit of liberation of worship and praise so that people can feel free to have an encounter with God, be it for them to raise their hands, to sit down, to cry with tears, to mm. to cry out, to, to come and kneel at the altar, mm. you know, and, and receive prayer. Um, all of those things are important to me, right? To have this, 
you know, we always talk about it's the, the overwhelming, never ending love of God, right? That chases me down by some foul, you know, right. all of that, right? But what does it really mean for us to have this experience, not just with our heads, but with our hearts? And yeah. so if I could tell you um, everything that I've done over my life or with all the ministry, it's that mm-hmm. is, is trying to usher in an encounter with God and also make the scripture plain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is very, you know, in such a way that anyone at any age can have a conversation around what's preached. One of the things as a, as a pastor or just as a worshiper, I, I think about this, how many times we've gone to church and we're like, church was so good. Oh my God, church was great. And then someone asks you, well, what was the sermon about? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> right. Right. I, I don't want that to be when people hear me or hear a message that I preach or, you know, I don't want it to be, I don't know. Right. You know, I want it to be, I really got that. I really understood. I really made the scripture plain and come alive off the page. And it's, and, and made this connection between the old Testament and the new and, and showed how the old Testament testifies to the new and the new testifies to the old and, and all of those sorts of things. So um, if I could talk about like ministry, mm-hmm. uh, who I've been in all, you know, all these years of serving, it's that like, let's, let's bring, let's bring the word of God alive. You, you better keep coming on with that. Come on. That is, that is <laughs> I'm telling you that of all, of all the times that we've talked over the last I think seven, six or seven months now that we've been uh, in this mentor-mentee relationship, you bring me back to those two things. It's the accessibility and the experience of God, because you know, the listeners might not know, but you know how much I can get in my head and how I can, I can go deep and I can nerd out and you always bring me back. And, and I think that is one of your singular gifts is you always bring people back to the experience of God. And, and really what's so perfect with you being about on this pod, being on this podcast is how our faith truly is applicable to this life. That even though our, our sacred texts were written over thousands of years, thousands of years ago, they apply. They absolutely have relevance today and can help us navigate the complexities in, you know, the 21st century. Yes. Yes. So, you, you really do. You really do. And, I, and I'll say too about worship. Look, I, I started, most of my life was in white church and I, it really started to blow my mind when in, I think it was 2003, 2004, when my church at the time started a contemporary worship. And I was like, huh, watching the worship leader lift her hands. And I was like, huh, I think I'll try that. But it wasn't until I got here at the upper room when I saw much more of the full breadth and depth of worship being in a cross-racial, multi-ethnic experience. So, you know, I, that's one thing <laughs> for the, for the longest time, uh, people would say, who is that tall white lady in the front waving her hands around? And, you know, my family still is just mortified that that is, that is who I am. But, um, it, it really gives you so much connection to God when you can with your whole body and soul and mind and heart, you can just engage with God. That's the, that's the beauty and why I don't think Sundays are ever going to fully go away 
because mm-hmm. there's no other communal space where you can really do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I still think there's something about the altar. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that we, you know, believe in contemporary spaces and, and, mm-hmm. and, and formats of how, how we set up worship. Yeah. But there is something about going and kneeling or laying prostrate, you know, laying full bodied out, you know, um, and just getting it out. Yeah. You know, I mean, cause I've experienced this in, in black church and in white church people, they will come and kneel. They may not, they may not, um, fully vocalize everything, but there's something about having someone having a pastor or having a lay person that is, trained in prayer to come and pray for you come and lay their hands on you that's very james you know like yes. you know come to the elders of the church if if you're sick and, and let them lay hands on you let them pray for you um that is very real yeah you know there's something because it it's a it's a manifestation of like i am entering into the presence of god through my bodily position and that truly can only go so far when you're digital. There, mm-hmm. There's something about the in-person. And that's that's why I love we haven't transitioned fully to digital. We're still, we're doing the combination of both because the communal aspect of, of being prayed for is, is so critical. And, um, and, and that was central to the Jewish or is central to the Jewish faith as well that we, you know, we come from. That's that's part of our roots. And so getting to the temple, getting with the other people, worshiping God, singing the Psalms. So let's talk a little bit about the differences then. And specifically, you know, you and I share some experience because we're both women, but you being a woman of color, it's, it's also a whole different experience. So talk to me about how things are different for women serving in ministry, specifically women of color serving in ministry, and whether you want to talk about that in the context of your time in Texas or in the Northeast or just in general. I think think there are different issues that you address in different contexts, right? Yeah. So when I was in the South, particularly Texas, uh, and and this happened in different forms, different places, different spaces. So, um, well, I'll start in North Carolina. Uh, when I was in seminary, I never knew that women weren't allowed to be pastors. I had never had anyone tell me that that was a thing because I grew up with four, I had four black female senior pastors as my pastors growing up. I didn't know that that was an anomaly. I, I just thought that was just how things were, right? Right. So it was kind of a, a rude awakening <laughs> to kind of, start to have to deal with um first starting off with men you know c- kind of some baptist men that i knew about challenging me going into ministry again like, I, I didn't know any better you know like <laughs> what do you mean <laughs> right right um and then um the first time that i really started seeing like disparity of being asked to preach but being asked to speak from the floor or I remember getting my nails done one time and, and a woman, you know, wanting to discuss scripture, but basically trying to discredit me as a minister of the gospel because somebody had oppressed her essentially, you know? And so I had, like I said, I had never in my life experienced that because I, you know, 
growing up in in Baltimore City, you have, you know, all of these strong, independent Black women. You know, I also kind of came out of an area with an uh, era where like almost everybody in city government was a woman. So mm-hmm. you we had a um we had a black female mayor, we had a black female um council person chair, we had a black female comptroller. I think we were the first city in in America to have all these black women running everything. Okay. So you know to start to kind of to move into spaces where that wasn't accepted or acknowledged or, you know, celebrated was a little challenging for me. Now I did, you know, I I had experience being the only woman. I had experience being the only black, you know, in college and stuff like that, but kind of simultaneously at different places. But I also had had good outlets then, right? Mm -hmm. But when you go to the church and you're the only, the only black person on staff that doesn't clean the floors or the first black person let's also also acknowledge that the first black person that the community experiences that's not in um, a position of service in that capacity um, that challenges so many people's perspective mm, wow um, yeah. and also you know I was very young when I was in Texas like I was super young fresh out of fresh out of seminary um, and um, although I had other jobs growing up, because I, I think that's also important to say, like I did, you know, work other places and stuff like that, but I literally was leaving as a student, you know, yeah. coming. So, so I wasn't just um, combating being a woman. I was combating being a woman. I was combating being young and I was combating being black. And when I was in the South, I was also combating the issue of being from the Northeast, having a very different perspective and uh, way of being, because oftentimes, and this is this is no diss to the South, but in the North, you know, people are a lot more straightforward. Yeah. There's not there's not as much passive aggressiveness. <laughs> it's a very much we say what we mean, we mean what we say, and we move on. You know, it's it's not as much sugarcoating of things. Like even when I was in um, served as a chaplain um, with younger people, my younger people would just tell me. Chaplin, you are so blunt. And it wasn't that I was blunt. It really was, this is a this is an East Coast way of being. We we why am I going to sugarcoat with you? Like, let's let's get it done. Like, you know. And so so those are some of the challenges. And then um having some having literally having the same pedigree as some of my white male counterparts, being in class with them. And seeing them get different opportunities than I did, see or seeing, um, seeing the conference recruit young talent, but not recruit young black talent. Mm. So for years, I got ordained in 2014. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I know they've ordained some other people since then, but it was several years yeah. before they ordained another young black person under 35. Wow. But even with the licensed local pastors, there are only a few that were black and under 35. Like there were a few. Yep. Yeah. And I could probably name them. Right. And I, you know, I've, I've heard not so much whispers. They've now grown to shouts of how there's disparity in that, that approval system. Oh, absolutely. I'll say this. 
because I had the right pedigree, uh, far as uh, going through the system part, it was pretty smooth until the very end. Okay. Um, well, no, no, I had two. I had two hiccups. Hmm. One, and this is this is not an uncommon occurrence that has happened with Black women and Black people in general. Part of our part of our ordination process is that you get uh, evaluated. You get, you know, you get um, psychological evaluations. Essentially, yes. to make sure that you're not crazy trying to run a church. Right. You go through these evaluations and the questions that you're asked, you're wonder, you know, I still to this day don't believe that the one question I was asked, uh, that it was asked to my white male counterpart. I, I, I highly, I highly doubt it, which was, are you angry? I mean, you're not the only black woman who was asked that question either. Oh no. Yeah. Oh no. And the only reason that I, I felt like I had a conversation with a mentor of mine, like maybe, maybe a month or so before this the, around what happened when she was asked that question. And, and in that moment, I was like, so God was preparing me to enter into this room and to be able to respond to this ignorance. Wow. I'm just being honest. Like, you yeah. know, I was able to respond in such a way yeah. that it got me out of that, you know, circumstance or what have you. Right. Um, now, and this happened again, and it's always, and it was a psychological evaluation. There was another, you, you take more than one along the journey, right? Right. Um, I took a test and I took one of these written bubble, whatever, whatever's. And it was me and this white guy that I went to seminary with. We both took the test the same day, the same time. We're in the room together. Mm. Driving to my ordination interviews and I get a call. And they're like, and I was like, okay, what's going on? And they're like, you might not get ordained. Excuse me, huh? What? I just went through all of this crap and I'm on my way to the order. What's happening? Mm. Well, we can't do, we can't find your thing. I said, hold up. I was in the room with the guy and I bet you, if you open up his file, my, my test would be with his test, right? And so it, was, it seemed very suspicious that at the time I was the young, only black, no, I wasn't only black. I was the youngest black female to be ordained in who knows how long at that time. Right. To have this issue at the very end. Wow. And so um, the blessing was I had a lot of advocates at the table. They knew my work. They knew what I was up to, da, 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 da. And so um, was able to get through that. But I know a lot of women, a lot of Black women that ended up getting, you know, derailed because of this. You feel like one, God was preparing you because of mm -hmm. others' experiences, but is, was he preparing you to persist in the system that is rooted in, in inequality, especially well, as young as, as you were, as young as you are, you know, What's what's the reason, Doctor Tory? What's the reason? <laughs> well, I, I really, I really believe if it had not been the Lord, you know, the, the script, if it had not been the Lord on my side, where would I be, right? But no, this is but literally, um, when I go back, I want to go back to seminary. I I had started exploring other churches because in seminary, the um, the version of Methodism that I was taught was not the version of Methodism that I had participated in. Hmm. And I actually didn't care for the version of Methodism that I was taught to a certain degree. 
I have a connection with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I don't necessarily have this deep abiding connection with the denomination itself. Mm. I would say that for me, it's the theology of the of the denomination that is that attracts me. Um, it's who we say that we are, um, and doing my best to live into who we say that we are. That that's what keeps me. But um, in my discernment process of like, do I really want to continue in the Methodist Church? Um, really was me praying, and in my prayer time, hearing God tell me that you know, no, I, I've I've called you to this church. Mm-hmm. I've called you to reform the church. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm here because of the call of God and my obedience to God. You know, if God requires something of me, you know, a long time ago, I just, I said, yes. And it was not a yes. Maybe it wasn't a yes, but it wasn't a yes. Cause I felt like it, right. it was yes, God, not my way, but your way. Yes, God, you know, I'm going to live a life that is surrendered and, that's not always comfortable. You know, your, your yes can take you to the wilderness, you know? Um, and there's a way out eventually, but it, it doesn't mean that you can't go there for a season. Right. Let's talk about your doctoral work because that, sure. that doesn't, you know, put, put any, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, any solidity behind it. Your experience is what, what echoes what the research showed. Does that make sense? So yes, absolutely. The, the research confirmed your experience, but we didn't need the research to, to believe oh. it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, well, but, but tell us about that research, what you discovered. Um, so I actually started my, um, remember I, I said my call came out of grief. Mm. And so because my call came out of grief um, in seminary, I was very much intrigued by lament, by the process of lament, like kind of, you kind of learn the formula of lament. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a whole little section in this class and it was on reclaiming lament, getting, remember getting in arguments about this idea of reclaiming lament, because I felt like. Um, I hate to break it to you, but black folk in black church, we lament all the time. Like the rest of y'all might need to reclaim lament. We don't necessarily need to reclaim lament, right? Right. And we've been talking about this on this podcast too, is that, you know, the first step is that, you know, when you learn that there's a problem is you need to lament about it. You need to own your piece of it, but go ahead. Oh yeah. So, uh, but there's something to me, there's something about lament There's something about, because lament gives voice to our pain. It's the voice of pain. It's the voice of prayer. It's individual. It's communal. It's all of these things, right? That's, that's what lament is. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, that's so, um, that speaks in whatever area of life you find yourself in, right? And then I dug a little deeper and found this work by A. Elaine Brown Crawford and her work is called A Hope in the Holler. And so she talks about what happens when lament goes into the mouths of black women. And she says that it becomes the holler. It becomes this cry against racialized and genderized violence. And so to me, um, having this other language of lament, like taking it a step forward, taking it, taking it from not just this Old Testament tradition, but entering into this 
tradition that embodies the pain of Black women and Black people were, was so important to me. And then the added layer was to begin to talk about the Black um, clergywoman's experience, particularly within um, our, you know, within the United Methodist Church. Um, my, my focus group were, were a group of Black clergy women from the TAC, from the Texas Annual Conference. And so with that being said, I, I was able to give voice to our collective pain um, because the, the intro to my work is actually not my story. The intro to my work is uh, Pastor Juanita Rasmus's story. Mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting. Um, I did this interview with her and wrote down a lot of things uh, before she uh, produced or you know put out her book, Learning to Be. I had already written this um, did an interview with her and kind of transcribed that interview and did like my opening statements in my, in my work is her story. Wow. And so she was the very first black woman that I had ever heard black clergy woman that had ever heard talk about having a crash, have dealing with depression, dealing with anxiety, dealing with these, you know, mental health issues. And so, um, and kind of through my relationship with her, I began to be able to address my own pain because being young, being black, being a woman um, in in spaces that were not always accepting or always affirming was very, you know, had been very challenging to me. And so the work that I was able to produce, you know, was, was just a way for me to address this mental health issue among black women, because there are such you know, almost 10% of Black women um, are, uh, say that they feel this sense of overwhelm, Mm. right, in life, right, this sense that just they're overwhelmed. And there's so many Black women that have these undiagnosed cases of depression. And so, you know, we are told to be strong Black women. And if you ever read um, Shanika Walker Barnes's book, um, she talks about this, the, 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 it's called Too Heavy a Yoke. And she basically talks about how this, the trope of the strong black woman is this, this Atlas who weighs the weight of multiple worlds on her shoulders. And so um, in my work, I'm trying to address this weight. And so I'm addressing the weight through lament because I, you know, because I'm not a, um, I'm not a trained clinician. I can't go through like DSM-5, like I would want to. But as a, as a theologian, what's my prescription as a theologian is learning how to holler. Yeah. And, and I guess, as I'm thinking about this, I mean, the, the tendency is because in society, you're, you're both told to be strong black women and you're also ridiculed for being strong black women. Yes. And so is there a tendency to just keep it moving, keep it pushing, stuff it all down. And that's where the mental illness takes root. I know in Juanita's case, she's, she's a perfectionist. And so mm-hmm. she just kept going until her body said, no, at, we are, no, <laughs> we are done. So, um, how do you, how do you see that in your research? How did you see that? Not just in United Methodism, but it's, it's across denominations. It's across faith expressions. And I, I'd like to say how many <laughs> or I'd like to ask how many Black women are in, in ministry at, at the level you are that you've been able to talk to and have had the same experience? 
Well, I think the challenge, and this is something, and this is something I had to learn as well, was this, like, so many of us are silently suffering, Mm. um, and partly because of how the system is um, formulated. Mm. Because if you show weakness, if you show, you know, that you need help or that you're incapable, you can be penalized for it. Right. Right. You know, you can be, have a label, you know, um, there, there was a black woman that I interviewed and she talked about feeling like three fourths of a person, Mm. um, after kind of dealing with some racial injustice in her, um, in her congregational setting and just how the, how she felt the conference didn't support her, but made her feel subhuman. Um, and that really kind of broke my heart, you know, like, um, when you do ask for help, um, and sometimes it really depends on who you are. Sometimes it really does depend on your connection. You know, if you get what you need or not. Mm. Mm. Um, and that, and that's, that's, that's a shame, but it's true, you know? Mm. Um, and so I think, uh, there were some, there, there definitely were some dark days, um, that I, I was barely functioning. Mm. Um, and, and so many other women I know, um, are barely functioning. Um, and so sometimes for me, uh, because of the work that I've done and because people, you know, kind of who I am as a person, I just, I just try to be available to who I can be available to. I can't be available to everybody, but I do try to be available, um, when I can kind of discern that someone is in crisis. Um, that's a, you know, that's kind of a spiritual gift of mine. Like I, I have the gift of discernment. So, so sometimes people can appear to be good on the outside and I'm talking to them and I know then the Holy Spirit will let me know they're, they're not as good as they, they are looking right. on the outside. And, right. and so then, you know, then I'll, I made you a follow-up conversation or say, you're just on my heart and give people a call and begin to pray with them and talk to them and minister to them, uh, minister to these women uh, because oftentimes they don't feel like there's a safe space yeah. to say, I'm not okay. Right. I'm not all right. Right. Well, and that's the, that's, that's the beauty in the beginning of the holler is yes. even admitting it to begin with to, to yourself first, to your, to yourself. But you know, it's, it's that you mentioned that, that this woman's story where she felt like she was three-fourths of a person, it broke your heart. That, I feel like that is, if anything's going to change, we have to, we have to let things break our hearts. Yes. I remember, remember, um, and I don't remember which, oh, I think it was a Lisa Turkhurst study that I did years and years ago with some friends, maybe 18, 19, 20 years ago. And um, (laughs) one of the chapters is, the prayer, God break my heart for what breaks yours, which yeah, I yeah. would caution anyone to pray because <laughs> it is, is a, it's what I would call a dangerous prayer for sure. But, you know, he's continued to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think on a global level, we're living in that reality. How do we participate? Because out of lament comes change. I really, really believe that. And your, your research, which I haven't read your, your, doctorate project, but I would like to, 
So go ahead and send that to me. I'll add that to my, my stack. My therapist would say no more. Don't you, can't. <laughs> no, but, um, but I have read, and this is how we met your chapter in, um, um, I'm black. I'm black. Yeah. I'm black. Um, uh, Christian, I'm Christian Methodist. Methodist. Yes. Yeah. And, and of course the, the scripture reference that you have in there that you built your chapter around is, is just mind blowing. Go get the book, read Dr. Tori's, Tori's chapter, your chapter three, your chapter four, right? Two. Yeah. Oh, chapter, chapter two. two. Right. Chapter it's right two. at the beginning. They put, yeah, they put me, they put me right at the beginning, right after Pastor Rudy. I, I, I lucked out. I lucked out of my product placement. <laughs> Where do we go after the lament? How do we participate in these movements of, of change that are happening that have to happen? I think it depends on what movement you're talking about there. Okay. You know, I think it, I think it depends on your heartbreak mm-hmm. and um, your assessment tools and, and, and where you're going. Um, I'm doing a sermon series now based off of a book called Walking with Nehemiah by Dr. Joseph Daniels. Um, if you get a chance, uh, that's a little shameless plug for him. Uh, check that book out as well. Um, what I like about it is that it gives a process of how to go through the heartbreak to be an effective change in your community. Willis Johnson's Holding Up Your Corner. You know, um, those, these are, these are just some people within our Methodist circles that are saying really prophetic things around how to be, how to address communal heartbreak. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, that's what I said. I think it just depends on the heartbreak that you want to, want to do. Um, and, and also making sure that, um, that it's a ministry with and not a ministry to, Mm because your heart may be broken for a particular group of people or a particular cause. Um, but are you, you got to know what your why is. Mm. You got to know, you got to know what's your intent. Yeah. You know, is your intent to build relationships that bring transformation because God has called you to be in relationship with others that don't look like you don't sound like you and you are um, in, and it's about relationship and not appearance. Mm. that that's a that's a totally different that's a totally different vibe you know um I'm in relationship with people that don't look like me but I'm in relationship because there's something about them that pulls me to them not because they check off something on my box in the context of women in ministry women of color specifically black women in ministry what does it look like when we hear the words, he has told you, oh mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly with your God. What is, what does that look like for this, this issue that we've got in front of us of the inequality for black women in ministry? Well, I think the question is not what do I do, but what do you do as a, as a white woman? What do white folk do in terms of um, relinquishing some seats at the table or moving over so that there are seats at the table. Um, I just saw a really great image around um, e- equity and equality and justice. And it was a, it was a, it was a, it was these three photos of um, kids looking into a baseball field, right? Yeah. And and there's some stair steps, mm-hmm. so the equality was that there were steps and all of them were standing on the steps looking in the field, but all of them were different heights. 
So although they had access, um, there was still someone who was over top of someone else. So that was the equality, right? Yeah. The, the equity was that um, now, although everyone is a different height, they can still kind of see, you know, they're on their boxes, but everybody can now, everyone now has a vision into the baseball field. Right. But the justice piece was that everyone was on the same footing and everyone had the same view. Right. Okay. And so are we, how are we moving to justice? Yeah. I think that's the question. I think that's, I think that's the deeper thing to, to analyze a little bit because, um, I, that's always my challenge. My challenge is to people, to the people that are in power. What are you doing with your power? What are you doing with your influence? What are you doing again to, to, to make spaces and opportunities for people that don't look like you to come and have access to certain things. One of the people who's no longer serving, um, in the Methodist church who transitioned out was a, a woman named Diane McGeehee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I was in Texas, Diane served, um, as a conference, um, director of missions, I believe at that yeah. time. And so one of the things that Diane did, Diane made sure I went to Kenya. Mm-hmm. She made sure that I had opportunities to have a seat at the table. Like she got me on the missions committee. She Mm -hmm. wanted me to be involved um, in outreach and these sorts of things that were my passion at the time. And she helped to cultivate space so that that there would be diversity in the room. And so the, the question is, it's not also about diversity. It's also are you also giving people agency to have diversity and voice? Right. That's, that's it. Yeah. It's not just about looking, looking different in the room. It's about yes. everybody having the voice, their, their having voice heard and voice and validity and affirmation. Yes. yes. You know, and, and, and I think all of those things play a part because um, my very presence, I think active activates a certain level of justice. Mm-hmm. And I say that because um, I come to you as someone who has not only a master's degree, but a doctorate degree. I come to you as someone who grew up in the inner city. I come, you know, there's just so many different things that I represent yeah. that it's, that is an automatic, would have been an automatic no for mm-hmm. who I am and where I am now. Yeah. So my very presence to a certain degree is a disruption. Yeah. Right. And so with that being said, is how do you, the other folk around me respond to someone, not me, but anyone that has these gifts, these graces, you know, are, are you going to squash it because it challenges your, it challenges your worldview mm-hmm. or are you going to cultivate it and affirm it because it challenges your worldview and you know that there are possibilities for other young people, other, you know, other women of color, other young black women, you know, um, or different women or women period. Right. So what I'm hearing you say is that there are, there are even levels to justice. Oh, absolutely. The, the first step is just being in the room Mm -hmm. and all that you are coming in the room and then adding agency on top of that and then adding leadership and then adding, you know, but it's also that there's more than just being in the room. Yeah. It's also that the people in the room are prepared to receive the, the other, whoever this other is. Right. Because um, 
I have, I have a friend who's in corporate America right now. Um, and she said, uh, yes, I could get offered this position, but I will not be successful if they are not prepared for me. Right. They're currently, they are not ready to receive me. Mm-hmm. And I would essentially, if I take this now, I would fail. Wow. And so I think there's something to be said about, are you prepared for what you're asking for? Right. And, um, and not just, are you prepared? Cause some things you can't fully prepare for. I get that. That's, you know, that's the way of the world. Yeah. Um, but are you willing to be told that you're wrong? Right. And that's anybody, you know, on any side, are you willing to be told that you're wrong? Right. And so that seems like to me, that is, it's, it's laying the groundwork that the, the white people who are in the room need to start preparing the room. Yes. It's, it's not just the performative aspect of bringing somebody of color into the room. Right. You got to get the ground ready. Right. Because, because then it becomes, again, the, then all of a sudden the black person in the room is the token person. Um, that's that's speaking for all the black people, which that's not true. You know, we, we are a diverse people with diverse interests and, you know, perspectives and all those sorts of things. So it's not fair to say we, one person represents everybody. That's not necessarily the case. Right. Right. But, um, but again, it, it does fail if the rest of the people don't do the work. Right. It does. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's important for me as a white person to, to stop and draw attention to because the question is always, what can I do as a, as an advocate, as an accomplice, as a, uh, ad, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever. Adjective. Language, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But what, what can I do to fight mm-hmm. against this racial injustice? What can I do to quote unquote level the playing field? What can I do to create systems of access? Well, you got to get the system that's in place ready for the change. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's a huge part of it is, you know, and, and the hardest system to change is one that works. So Mm -hmm. how do you, how do you begin that process where you are, whether that's church or corporate America or nonprofit or education, how do you get, how do you start planning to use a biblical analogy, start planting those seeds? Mm Mm-hmm and cultivating those seeds growing into some fruit. Remember, I, I, I started, I kind of in the middle of our conversation said, well, you know, I saw, I grew up in a system where there was a, a black, uh, black female mayor, black council, black female council chair, black comptroller. Yeah. But now I'm, I'm now serving in an annual conference where I have a black female bishop who's mm-hmm. very heavily involved in social justice. Mm-hmm. Um, Baltimore Washington Conference does amazing racial justice work um just if if everyone if anyone is interested just go to bwcumc.org they have great resources around anti-racism and and all those and and books and just a lot of good things to check out so i want to give my give the conference a, a shout out there um but we also monumentally we have three black female ds's i don't think anyone else in the entire denomination you know, has three black female DSs plus a black female bishop. I think that I think that also speaks to um, what happens yeah. when there when when there's a little bit of a leadership shift. Yeah. Um, and so, to me, that's that's really really exciting to be a part of. Yeah. I, <laughs> when you said that, that is, 
amazing. And I'd love to be a part of that because that that's a moving and shaking conference right there. But mm -hmm. I also see what kind of grinding halt that would happen in the Texas annual conference. If I will say this to my surprise, they have the leadership is probably the most diverse it's ever been. Okay. I would say that, like, I think currently they have two black female, female DSs and they have two black male DSs. And I think they also have another, they have a white woman, I think probably another white male in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so far as the cabinet is concerned, mm -hmm. I would say like, this is the most diverse cabinet they've probably ever had. Okay. Um, so to their credit, you yeah. know, to, to yeah. their credit, um, uh, cause I was there when they appointed the first black female DS that they've ever had. And that, and that's been in the last seven or eight years. She's, she's been a DS. Okay. And so, um, so that also tells you the, how recent, yeah. um, this stuff is, this, this changes. Right. Right. Still got a lot of work to do, you know, and that's, that's the thing about keeping, keeping this all in perspective is, you know, the, the groundwork has to be laid, but we've got a, we got a lot of history to overcome at this. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, managing expectations. That's a bit, <laughs> I'm a parent, so I've always got to manage my expectations somehow, but um, you know, that's, that's also key to keep in the work. And, and that was one of the things that I wanted to ask you too, is, you know, how do you stay persistent? How do you stay resilient? How do you thrive in a system of equal inequality? Jesus. <laughs> I mean, um, <laughs> I'm just saying, Jesus, um, you know, I mean, I think sometimes we try to make it more complicated than that, but it, it really is that like, I'm, uh, I am innately a fighter. Mm. And so, and because I'm innately a fighter, like there's, um, when I see a wall, like I, I want to, I, I just, I need to push through it like this, you know, um, this wall for me, um, it may, it may seemingly exist right now, mm -hmm. but it won't exist much longer, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so in my, in, in the chapter that Amy, uh, highly highlighted, um, and also a little bit of my doctoral work, I talk about the stained glass brick ceiling, the church world, the stained glass ceiling is what we talk about with women, you know, trying to, uh, to bypass the stained glass ceiling so that they can have equal pay, have equal treatment, you know, all these sorts of things. And so, um, I took that and then added the layer of the brick. Cause I feel like there, there are times that you can crash the stained glass, but, once you get past the stained glass as, as black women, there's still this brick behind the glass yeah. that I need a sledgehammer <laughs> to begin to break through. Yeah. Um, and so um, I, I feel like probably uh, for the first time in my ministry that there's a hole in the wall and I can see the sunlight coming through that hole. Okay. And so um, I had a, had a mentor ask me, he says, you know, um, so a lot of things that I talk about in the book and in my work was around like, 
around opportunity, around pay, around, you know, all these things that are, that are issues. Um, And uh, recently I got a new appointment and in my new appointment, uh, there were some things have been rectified Hmm. in terms of, in terms of my pay, in terms of access, in terms of, of the type of church that I'm serving. I'm finally where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. I'm on par to what I've been kind of fighting for or working towards this entire time. Right. And so, um, literally my mentor says, so now that all the things that you talked about are that were issues, they're no, now that they're no longer issues, now what are you going to do? Right. So, and this is, this is, this is where I am going back to lament. Yeah. At the end of lament, there's always a praise. Mm. So I think the question is out of all the things that we discussed, right? Yeah. Like once we get, not to say that we're going to fix all the problems of the world. Let me, let me, (laughs) although we may try, right? Going back to the beginning of this, right? We may not, we might not get all the way there. Yeah. But when will we stop and praise God for the, for, for the moment that we're in? Mm. The, the moment where maybe this one door that was locked is now open. Mm. So how do we now embody praise? Because we've already embodied the pain. The pain has been with us for such a long time. So what does it mean to release the pain and walk into the door of praise? And I think that's the other part of lament that we cannot forget lament always ends in praise it's a crying out to god it's a voicing pain but you can't stay there because mm. then you miss out on this praise part because mm. in the praise that's when the healing shows up okay see this is you you're gonna come and need to preach this <laughs> preach this at my church and you know we were talking about how you just bring with you an experience of the holy spirit and that's it right there I don't know if the listeners are getting it, but I am. <laughs> oh my gosh. I just lay me out on the floor. <laughs> can we move the mic? Can we move the mic so I can just bask, in <laughs> bask in the presence of the Lord? Goodness gracious. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I need you to come and lay some people out in Houston. <laughs> Look, but we gotta work on we gotta work on this pandemic first. I, I have, I, look, I haven't touched I really haven't touched people in my own church because I'm so afraid of the Rona. Okay, <laughs> right. I, I'm not trying to have the Rona come get me. Right. I want to leave it on this note because I know you do this already. Is talking with young folks, especially young folks in the church setting, in ministry, getting into. Um, into and life in the church world is just a different it's a different it's just a different world literally but what kind of advice are you giving to the young people nowadays in terms of well just being you know being in ministry being in in relationship with god and other people well the advice i'm really giving them really is about teaching them how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Mm, okay. um, the advice I'm giving them is Acts 1 and 8, 
which says, now wait for the Holy Spirit to come for you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the world. Yeah. That's the advice I'm getting, giving them. It's like, okay, how can we prepare you to be a witness? What, what, what tools do you need so that you can be a witness in Jerusalem being at home? And then, and then we can push you out into the world. Like, you know, so the advice I'm giving them really is let's, let's get you to be a disciple um, whose life is centering on loving God and loving others. And then we can discuss where you want to go. Well, thank you so much. I'm just, I'm so grateful doesn't even, I I need to get a better word than grateful because it's more, I need a more encompassing term than that, but you just continue to, to bless my life all the time. And in every way I encounter you. So if you would leave us with a blessing, that would be incredible. Right. Lord God, we're so grateful and thankful for those who are tuning in on this podcast Lord, you know the ways in which folks are wrestling with what does it mean to be present for one another in this time, but also, God, what are you saying? What do you require of us? In the words of Micah, are you requiring of us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you? And if so, God, which way to go? Um, I know I know the spirit, the experience of being young Black woman in ministry uh, may not resonate with everyone, but but people may resonate with what does it mean for the world to tell you no. God, we pray in those moments where we hear the no's that we would also hear your voice whispering to us, yes. Yes, that we are children of God. Yes, we have a calling on our lives. Yes, there's something greater in store for us. Yes, there's more that you require of us. Yes, uh, to your will and to your way, yes. So God, I just pray for the yeses, the yeses to respond to heartbreak, the yeses to respond to issues of injustice, the yes, oh God, to walk humbly with you. So God, I ask that you'll be with Amy. I pray that you're with the production team. I pray that you will be with those who are listening on today. And God, we pray for their yes, that it's a whole yes, that's a complete yes, and that's not a maybe yes. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, wow. Pray for the yeses. Thank you so much. I, I just, I love you. <laughs> I love you too. You bless thank, my thank soul. You. Thank, thank, thank you for the invitation. Um, and we will come together again soon. Amen. amen. Applying Jesus is hosted and produced by Amy Vogel, Director of Spiritual Growth for Upper Room Heights. We record at Chapelwood United Methodist Church Digital Studio in Houston, Texas. We hope something you heard today has deepened your faith, opened your eyes, and led you to not only knowing God in a more expansive way, but shift how you connect, especially with those who are easy to overlook. To find out more about Amy and our church community, go to www.urheights.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Remember, we love you, and there's nothing you can do about it.